This episode of the Adventure Jogger podcast brought to you by John Dewey, Oliver Edwards, Alex Vermijan, Ray R., Kevin Dames, all of our Patreon supporters, and you, yes, you, the listener. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Adventure Jogger. I just want to take a minute to tell everyone to buckle up. Because this is one heck of a conversation. Dustin Canistorp is his name. A Marine veteran from Wisconsin, served after 9-11, combat tours. Our conversation goes from, you know, growing up in a small town and listing in the service, running, talking about what it's like to serve, Um, when he started dealing with PTS and and other issues and how running helped him overcome it. A lot of strong opinions, a lot of storytelling. Um, This is a wild one and a great conversation that just covers a lot of bases. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode of The Adventure Jogger. All right, Dustin, we got to start like square one. Where is home for you? Where'd you grow up? Well, I was going to say, if you didn't add that last little part, I was going to tell you that the Marine Corps taught me home is wherever you lay your head at night. But uh, <laughs> right. uh, so I was born in New Jersey, a uh, product of, um, well, basically a single parent family. My mother, uh, my father was estranged coming back from Vietnam, uh, hooked on heroin and uh, alcoholic and everything. So to get away from him, the cool thing to do back in the early seventies, I guess was go to the West coast. So, uh, her along with a friend of hers, um, they moved all the way out to Southern California. So from the ages of roughly three to, um, 12 grew up in Southern California, various places from San Diego out to the desert, uh, all South of LA basically look geographically. Yeah. And then, uh, moved to Wisconsin. And, uh, so, I graduated high school in Wisconsin. I enlisted in the Marine Corps from Wisconsin. So, I, I, you know, I pretty much say, oh, I grew up in Wisconsin then. Okay, so you have this weird upbringing of, I can still hear some Jersey in your voice, by the way. <laughs> I think that's just, uh, uh, some people call that asshole, but yeah, okay, I'll go with Jersey. You know? <laughs> but I hear some of that. And then you move out west. There you are in California mm-hmm. until you're, you know, late tweens, early teens. And then you yeah. move to Schooner, Wisconsin, which is Spooner. Spooner, Spooner, Wisconsin, which is a small town right yeah. outside of Superior. Um, Between Superior and Eau Claire, yeah. <laughs> How was that for a culture shock to go Dude, from California so, to small town Wisconsin? Oh, man. I went from, uh, I mean, before we moved, we lived uh, in a little town called Morongo up in the mountains, kind of like, mm-hmm. but it's like um, Sierra's a lot of desert, basically. So, you know, there really wasn't four seasons, right? And then you go, and there wasn't really no chores or anything like that. Then we moved to freaking, actually it was Trigo, Wisconsin, which about a couple, about six, seven miles away from Spooner going towards Hayward. And uh, I lived on the Namakagan River and went from not any chores to, 
splitting stacking wood, you know, because that's what we burned in the freaking wintertime, to raking leaves in the fall, shoveling snow in the freaking wintertime, um, planting the garden and starting to cut grass, you know, in the spring, definitely cutting grass and all that shit in the, in the summer. And, and uh, I think I got uh, my work ethic uh, from my dad, really, because, I mean, he was – <laughs> yeah, it was very particular, you know, like God. And I had a fucking push mower, and I'm not talking a push mower with a motor motor. I'm talking one of those crazy ass little pre World War II things, where it's like multiple blades, yes. and kind of, and the wheels drive the damn thing. <laughs> so you hit a fucking pine cone, and it would jam it up, and you're just like, oh, you know. And we didn't have a snowblower. It, well, the funny thing is, I bust my dad's stones all the time about yeah. this. The minute I moved out of the house. They bought a riding lawnmower. They bought a snowblower. They bought, and I tell my brother who lives—he lives down in Madison. Uh, he went back to school down. Yeah. He's a, the, um, a badger. Yeah. And uh, and I said, you know, dude, this is bullshit, man. You know, I mean, it's like as soon as I stepped out, freaking, he bought everything. But uh, no, nah, it's it's. Uh, I, I love uh, Wisconsin. I, I uh, you know, as a, as a teenager and stuff like that, you know, growing up in a town, a population like twenty two hundred or whatever, right. you know, I. I think for the longest time we had like one or two traffic lights and I think they expanded to three now, you know? Uh, I mean, I remember when subway came, you know, those like, Whoa, you know, got a freaking subway, but, uh, um, it was great. I mean, you know, hunted, fished, um, you know, everything, you know, just to have those four seasons, I was big into winter sports. I learned to play hockey in third yeah. grade. The first year I moved there, played hockey all the way through, uh high school even played in uh bar league uh and then when i joined the marine corps i played on the marine corps team for a couple of years when i was stationed out of quantico mm -hmm. and um i still actually i still have my freaking hockey gear i took it up uh my uh all my in-laws are upstate new york so i took it up to a plate against sports thinking oh yeah i can unload it because down here in north carolina you know right and uh they're like nah man we got too much of this shit. you should try something <laughs> <it> down south <laughs> so i was like oh shit man and uh there is no bigger disappointment then when you play hockey, you get all the gear, you get out of playing hockey, and you're like, I'm going to take us to play against sports. I'm going to get a decent amount of money. And then when you turn it in in like Wisconsin or another area where there's a lot yeah, of Michigan, youth, Minnesota, yes, yeah, forget about. They're like, yeah. we'll give you $3 for all of it. Yeah. You're like, what? It's almost like, it's almost like Hey, you should be paying us for taking it off your hands type <laughs> right, of thing. That's right. what it feels like, you know? Yeah, Jesus. it's so funny. You're talking about your childhood. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, too. We had 4,400 people in my hometown of McGuanago, Wisconsin. I remember my dad, like other kids would have dads with snowblowers, and we get those yeah. big storms coming through, mm. and so we'd have to get up early to, to shovel the driveway so dad could get to work, because my dad never right. missed a day of work, ever. Same here. And I remember saying to my dad, like, hey, can we get a snowblower? And he goes, I've already got three snowblowers, you and your brothers, <laughs> so why would I need to buy one? <laughs> That's right, man. I'm telling you, it was crazy. And that's one of the things. I'm a big Brewers fan growing up. Uh, I can remember staying up late at night, listening to AM radio, listening to Bob Euchre call, oh, the, call the games. Yes. And I can remember him saying shit that was like not PC by early 1980s standards, <laughs> right? Like It was like... Did he just say that? It was like, can he say that? It was like, well, that's Bob, you know. And, and uh, it really reminds me of uh, Major League, where they actually filmed a lot of that yeah. in Milwaukee, and where he did the commentation. Uh, the uh, you know hypothetical yeah. was Cleveland Indian yeah. team, but man, the shit he would say in that movie too is like right up there, you know. I think only people from Wisconsin realize that Bob Euchre is a god in that state. <laughs> And when, when Mr. Belvedere came on and all of a sudden we're like the God of Wisconsin. 
Mr. Uh-oh. Wisconsin is on a network television show. Yeah, the yeah. star of Mr. Fucking Belvedere. That yeah. was like the biggest TV show. And that's everybody. I don't know what the ratings were like in the rest of the country. Yeah. But everybody in Wisconsin <laughs> yeah. watched the Packers and Mr. Yeah. Belvedere during that yeah, run. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I've never met the man. Uh, I would wish, you know, I would love to uh, meet him, uh, you know, because he's definitely getting up there in years. But uh um, I just feel like between him and then, of course, bratwurst and beer, right? And Wisconsin yeah. is like the only place I know where shit, man. You could, you know, that's they call it a tavern, right? Like you, you can drink, like drinking. I almost want to say, I, I, you know, I know drinking and driving is not, you know, it's not something we should do right. or whatever. No. But like, it was almost like it was a national pastime when I was growing <laughs> up. You know, like I, I don't know, like you bar. They just went from bar to bar, tavern to tavern, and and uh, it was just crazy. But uh, I. Um, I really, uh, I, I, well, like when you do the 17 inch stretch, the only place I know where they'll do, you know, beer poke, roll out the barrel, you know, and I'm at the game. And, uh, you know, and I try to explain to people that the Brewers and the Cubs is like a rivalry, like the Red Sox or the Yanks. I mean, right. it's, it's very contentious. And, uh, um, but, you know, it's all good. And, uh, I really think I don't watch much football. I play fantasy football and stuff like yeah. that. But, uh, uh, I always felt like the NFC Central or whatever, you know, Detroit, you know, the Vikings, freaking Green Bay, Chicago, like yeah. that. It was always, uh, anytime those guys were playing each other, it was always a knockout, drag out. And it always seemed like one of the games on Thanksgiving, too, was always, you know, right. those games. Was and even if, it won, even if one of the teams playing the game only had won one game that season, Detroit Lions, and they were playing like, <laughs> you know, the, the team that was in the lead, it was always going down to the last minute. You, they, they always yeah. played each other very, they continue to play each other very hard. Yeah. So all that Wisconsin talk to say, you go to high school in Wisconsin, you're this Jersey slash California boy, and now you're in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, adjusting to life there. Northwoods, there you go. The yeah. North, good, the good old Northwoods of Wisconsin. Uh, find me a more beautiful place. Good luck to you. Um, yeah. and, and it's that where it, that's where you graduate high school, and and that's where you yeah. enlist in the Marine Corps, correct? Yeah, actually, out of Rice Lake, uh, which was a substation out of Eau Claire, which then fell underneath uh, the Minneapolis Main Recruiting Station because they have like. I don't know how to yeah. explain it, but they have all the recruiters, you know, kind of stationed out and they all kind of fall underneath somebody. So I, I know the story because I watched the video, but yeah. but your your deployment story is or your sorry, your 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 enlistment story of yeah. how you signed up with a recruiter, that that's rather interesting. Tell everybody kind of how you how you got wrapped well, up in the Marine Corps, Dustin. Yeah, so like I originally was going to join the Marine Corps right out of high school. Uh, I graduated in ninety one. Uh, a friend of mine was interested. Actually the recruiter was coming over to his house and then they had the buddy program and, and uh, you know, it was getting kind of sucked into that. And I, you know, again, nothing against small town America and stuff like that, yeah. but you know, while the Northwoods is beautiful, it's definitely the land of minimum wage, you know, and right. back then minimum wage was like, when I started working, it was around three twenty-five, I think. Yep. And then I think the big jump was like three eighty-five, and then it was like four and a quarter. And those are the major steps or steps ups. I remember. And, um, I think by the time I graduated high school, it was either 385 or four and a quarter. I don't quite remember. Yeah. Uh, but it just was no opportunity. I mean, there's just no opportunity. Yeah. And I I didn't want to be stuck in a small town. I think most people, you know, as they're getting high school, they want to go to a big city, right? They want to experience other things that they can't we, I think we're too naive. We can't appreciate what a small town has to offer, right. too. And um, so... 
my mom though because my biological father being uh you know a vietnam vet pretty messed up she was very anti-military um you know she wanted something else for me and we were poor though i mean we were freaking poor mm-hmm. i remember uh, applying for financial aid anyways she helped me uh, get a, a scholarship and then with financial aid went to uh north central technical college in wasa yeah so i moved down to wasa i stayed in the dorms they had a special partnership with uh, uw marathon county or whatever mm-hmm. and uw marathon was like a community college or a two-year yeah. prep and then yeah. you'd move into one of the bigger uh university system schools like stout or um you know down to madison Milwaukee, whatever yeah. uh and so i got it uh but to put it in perspective i remember our family income because you had to disclose that it was less than forty thousand a year i yeah. mean total now I guess that you know adjusted for inflation that's not bad but i just remember we just you know all my christmas and uh birthday gifts were always hockey gear because it started off hockey season that was pretty much it and it was usually used stuff yeah but uh so uh didn't join went to college you know uh i majored in partying uh, (laughs) which i think uh, everybody in wisconsin you either major or you minor in partying Bro, I was on the fucking seven-year freshman program. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't even know, man. And so, hey, newsflash for you young people that are thinking about going to college. If you don't maintain a certain GPA, there's a really good chance if you don't read the boilerplate that you're going to lose your damn scholarship, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember starting my uh, sophomore year, and it was like, you know, they're like, hey, you need to go to financial aid. There's a problem, you know, when you register for classes. I'm like, okay. And then it was like, yeah, you owe this bill, and it's like thousands of dollars, right? And I'm like what are you talking about i'm here on scott and like right. no 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 you lost that last year man like you know so uh i was gonna apply i think i did apply for a pell grant some other crap but by the semester break you know because i got one semester deep in my sophomore year i ended up long story short dropping out when i dropped out i went to a recruiter in wasa marine corps recruiter yeah i was so freaking close to joining but a buddy of mine that was my roommate uh and then i went to high school with he he actually moved down there because of me you know wausau is about at that time it was about 65 70 000 people if you include schofield yeah. and wausau east wausau west and yeah. everything decent sized city and uh, uh he was working for conagra foods which is if people don't know what conagra is one of the major i think the biggest food producing company uh they run everything from slaughterhouses to like the whole kit and caboodle yeah and so he worked there and um he was making like nine or ten bucks an hour now mind you back in the day now definitely minimum wage is about four and a quarter so if you're making two and a half times minimum wage shit man like that's pretty damn good money, yeah man yeah and uh so he's like dude you're crazy man like i know you enjoy military i was like well you know he's like i can get you a job there you know yeah. being uh, an apprentice butcher so i go in sure shit they hired me it was cool because you worked you got paid every friday uh, there was definitely a lot of legals working in the, you know, meat packing plants and stuff like that. So, um, if I, I remember getting paid in cash a lot of times, but you could request check. Uh, but I know for a lot of the legals, like it was cash and carry type. Right. Thing. Yeah. You know, most, most of the, um, so we worked in a little plant in Edgar, Wisconsin, which is about 15 miles or about 50, not 15 miles, about 15 minute drive west of, uh, Wausau and small, I mean, you're not, there's not even a traffic light. I mean, it's like, that is the main thing in that town and there was a bowling alley slash bar and i can remember most paydays because on fridays people would drink and party all weekend and by monday they're dead ass broke and they're right back at it right <laughs> i mean most guys are spending money chasing skirts and shit you know and then yep. i broke man and right back to so long story short with that is i worked there for a couple of years i worked my way from apprentice to journeyman 
I was making like 11 and a quarter by this point. All of a sudden we come in on a Friday, the whole freaking plant is shut down, gutted. They moved all the operations down to Georgia, laid off all 400 something of us. And it was like, what the fuck? And uh, so by this point, I, I go back up to Spooner because the, that market is just flooded now with butchers and meat yeah. packers. Like you couldn't find a job. I even interviewed for a job out in South Dakota and went out there for a week. Um, they love me. I just it wasn't in too much in the love of South Dakota, though. <laughs> so, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I came back home. I stayed staying with my folks and stuff like that. And uh, it, you know, people talk. You know, and I'm not trying to slam. Um, full disclosure. I don't give a shit what side of the political divide you fall on, liberal, conservative, guess what? They both fucking suck, man. You know, I wish we put term limits on all these motherfuckers. But uh, uh, back then, uh, minimum wage or minimum wage uh, unemployment. And I'm just I'm thinking about Obama, like when we were doing a hundred and something weeks of freaking yeah. unemployment. Back then, you got 12 weeks of unemployment and it was a pittance. And you had to show actively show that you had interviews and you're looking for work and you had to come in and they had to sign it. You had to come in and hand that thing in every single week to keep getting unemployment for that 12 weeks. Right. And so the closest unemployment office for us is Rice Lake, which is about a 30 minute drive south of Spooner. And uh, I don't know if it's strategic or what, but you have to walk. It's an indoor uh, strip mall. And I, I always laugh because people down here in the south don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm like, Look, man, it's, it gets really cold up there. So you'll have like these little indoor strip malls yeah. where it's like basically a strip mall, but it's all indoors. Right, I don't know how right. to explain it. And so to get to the unemployment offices towards the back, you had to go past, I, again, strategically placed where all the recruiting offices, mm -hmm. in my opinion, they had to be. Oh, yeah. So uh, I remember one day I didn't even have enough money to put gas in my car. And so my dad had to go to Rice Lake. So I rode down with him and he was waiting on me. He's like, he goes, there you go, Dust. He goes, there, there's the recruiter's office. You should go, you know. He goes, third time's a charm. He even said something jokingly like that. And I'm thinking, fuck that. Like, no way. Because by this point, I'm 21 and I'm just like, uh-uh. Like, yeah. You know, I, or maybe I was 22. I'm trying to remember now. I just, that wasn't for me, man. Like, or that's what I thought. Uh, a couple weeks later, again, like I said, you had to go in. So by week three or four, I had to go in. I said, hey, Dad, can I borrow your truck? Because again, I don't have enough gas. He's like, sure. I walked in, the only recruiter working, it was a Saturday, and it was the Marine Corps recruiter. He was the only one in the office. Yeah. And I and I said to myself, because it usually took me about an hour or two, because you had to wait in line, and, you know, it was nothing online like yeah. it is now and stuff. And I said to myself, if he's still there when I walk out, and, of course, this is me kind of procrastinating, I said, but I promised myself, I will talk to him. Like, I'll just talk to him. Like, right, I'm not right. come in. I'm just going to talk yeah. to him. So I came out. He's still working, man. Uh, long story short, two hours later after talking, my fucking signed up, man. It was like, shit me off. I requested orders. I even volunteered for orders overseas, which is like a recruiter's wet dream. And like, and it was off cycle. Like this was, you know, the main dump, main time that people ship to boot camps or, you know, in all branches of service is definitely early summer, right? Because yeah. they're graduating high school and, you know, um, I mean, a, you know, a big portion of enlistees come right out of high school and go right in. Yeah. But this was towards the end of summer, like August, September. So it was like off cycles, like perfect. And um, yeah, so freaking for me, boot camp in the Marine Corps, we only have two boot camps. Uh, if you're basically, if it's east of the Mississippi, you're supposed to go to Paris Island with the exception of Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, we go to San Diego, out in California. And uh Yeah. And the rest was history, man, you know? So, real quick, because this is a running podcast, I have to ask, yeah. were you a runner in high school at all? Was it a part of your life so, at all? Yeah. 
So uh, I did, you know, I competed in 5Ks, 10Ks, a little bit. It wasn't, I never thought of myself as a runner. I was definitely, um, you know, I played a lot of sports, football, um, hockey, uh, all, you know, ba- I mean, I didn't play organized basketball, but pick up like, but I yeah. did everything. However, my freshman year in high school, uh, I wanted a letter. Like, you know, who doesn't want a letter? Right. But in order a letter, most high schools, the rule is you have to play on a varsity team. And, uh, I was a pretty decent runner, I guess. And the track coach was like, hey, we don't have anybody for the one mile, two mile event, right? Now, yeah. one mile, two mile is almost like borderline cross country, right? Back then, like, I, I'm trying to remember if I remember high schools having cross country teams per se. But uh, anyways, I, I signed up for track because he's like, yeah, you could letter because you could, if since nobody's there, even running those things, you automatically make the varsity <laughs> team, right? So I'm like, ding, ding, ding. I got a chance to letter then, right? <laughs> So I lettered in track my freshman year just by default, right? I mean, it's like, fuck, that doesn't even count, right? But, hey, it counted, man. I was wearing the jacket. That's all that freaking matters. So You didn't yeah, tell so the I girls. Ran. You, you wear that letterman's jacket to impress the girls, and you didn't tell them, like, oh. by the way, I was the only person on the varsity yeah. team no, running two miles. You leave that all out. You're just a letterman. Yeah. I did letter uh, my sophomore year for football, though. It's because every time you lettered, once you had your letter, you yeah. get these little um, – Little pins, pins or yeah, whatever yeah. for that sport or whatever so uh you know and of course the cool thing back then is if you had a girlfriend going steady or whatever she's wearing your letterman's jacket wearing your class ring all this stupid shit right i mean well it wasn't stupid back then but you know puppy love type stuff you know let me ask you because my wife makes fun of me for this being in track you'd get a yeah. medal sometimes you'd, you'd go to a invite or something and if you were you must first, have been really good i don't remember getting well, yeah because i would i would get medals and then we would sew the medals onto our letters yes wrestlers would do that yes and so when you would, you'd walk you're almost like this yeah, dictator from a third world country just ching, 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 ching. like momar Gaddafi as i'm walking down yeah, the no shit. Uh, oh my god high school. Gaddafi. <laughs> so, no you're right on right on and here's the other thing too i i I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I know I like running on some level, but for the most part, it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the thing. Remember, if we back up, talk about California and stuff like that. When yeah. I was a kid, because I used to get uh, my one of my mom's boyfriends, he used to beat the shit out of me. I mean, basically abuse by 1970 standards. So I would take off first thing in the morning if yeah. I didn't have school. And if either I was with my friends or not, but we'd run around the mountains, literally run. You know, I can remember playing soldier, you know, all the stuff that little yeah. boys do and stuff like that. And I wouldn't go home until it was dark. And so I can remember early on, I'm talking as almost as young as four running, like literally running away from this asshole who used to beat the shit out of me and stuff like that. But like it was, a, it, it just became it was like uh i'm trying to think of the right word it was just it was just ingrained yeah uh, from the get-go i think at the first i think it was running away but then as a kid like who doesn't kids just run right they yeah. look, watch any playground it is inherent it is just a natural thing and most of the times when they're running they're sprinting man i mean they're doing anaerobic they ain't doing aerobic you know and um and so i think you know i i maintain that i I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't trying to be physically fit, but it was a release for me to deal with um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you, by the way, watch a kid run. They have perfect form. Yeah, they do. Kids have what we pay money for. We have we we, we, no we send video of ourselves running to a coach and pay him hundreds of dollars to tell us how to run like a child. 
let alone they're not paying for custom orthotics, fucking two hundred dollars <laughs> shoes, like freaking uh, you know a thousand dollar Garmin GPX watch or whatever the fuck. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like they don't care. And guess what? They're not worried about hydration or special foods or freaking special drink powder mixes. You can this and you know tailwind that. I mean, they they, they don't care, man. I'm running in two hundred dollar Hoka's. That kid's running in ten dollar hand me down Oshkosh Bagosh slippers. <laughs> No shit. Pro wings from Payless Shoe Shows, man. <laughs> so, so, oh, my God. Man. So, so Dustin. 250 a shoe, man. Five bucks a pair. <laughs> so, all of that to say running was a part of your life, yeah. you know, somewhat, not to what it would become later on. Um, but you go into the Marine Corps, you go through boot camp. Yeah, that was a really bad choice if you don't like running, by the way. The Marine Corps is fucking psychotic when it comes to running. Like, what is running like in boot camp for the Marine Corps? Oh, it's organized. You're always, I mean, so part of our physical fitness test that you have to take every year or maybe it's every six months, I'm trying to remember, is a three, part of it's a three mile run Yeah. Uh, to max out your points on, well, I don't know what it is by today's standards, but back then, three miles in 18 minutes to get you a perfect score on your run portion Ooh. of your physical fitness. And I only did that once. Wow. And uh, time I was usually falling in between 19, 20 minutes as I started getting a little bit older um, get in the 20 to 22 minute range. Yeah. But then as I got deeper in my career is when I really started finding, uh, I call it adventure racing, uh, because I would do, uh, swim, run, swims. I would do yeah. mud runs, obstacle runs. Yeah. Uh, and then I started flirting with, uh, ultras. Actually, I did start doing ultra distances. I did the Marine Corps marathon. Yeah. 2000. That was my first marathon. And, uh, I'm trying to think. I didn't do my first ultra distance until after I retired from the Marine Corps. Okay, so you did the Marine Corps marathon as a Marine. Um, So you get in, uh, and I'm trying to do the math in my head. Did you get in right before the first Gulf War? So right, so I was in high. I was a senior in high school while that thing was going on. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so you missed the first Gulf War. So yeah, so I entered right around the time all the shit went down in Somalia. So if you remember that timeline, yes. where Clinton's in office now, and I would say what set the stage for 9-11 and stuff like that, because when we had soldiers being dragged through the streets and stuff like that, that really, you know, 24 News was starting to become a thing. Right. That really turned, I think, America off to, like, why are we deploying so much and doing getting involved in some of these things? And I really feel like we started taking, I mean, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I'm not trying to blame Bill Clinton or anybody like that. I'm just saying... Our posture, I would say on some levels, we started becoming more uh, isolationist, Yeah, I guess, in our mindset. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, we still stick our nose in a lot of people's business. And back then, I think we were too, but right. uh, not militarily as much. Yeah. yeah. So you get in right when Somalia is going on. Did you have to deploy to, to Mogadishu at that no, point? No, no, okay. no. No, because I was going through boot camp and all that crap you okay. know, uh, was going down. So so you, would be, the- you wouldn't deploy really until the second Gulf War, right? No, well, so uh, I remember I volunteered for orders. Uh, so I actually deployed to Okinawa, Japan. It was where okay. my first duty station was from 95 to 96. And then I spent some time in Korea because back then we had that crazy idiot. Remember, he would do his rattle his sword or whatever. Yes. So yeah. then I went forward, deployed to Camp Pohang, Korea. And I was there for about five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, shit subsided and went back to Okinawa. And then I got stationed in Camp Pendleton, California for the rest of my enlisted term before I got a meritorious commissioning. Okay, so, so you actually were one of the few, uh, because that, that's not very that's not very common to go no. from enlisted 
to officers. So at what point, what, what rank were you when you switched? So I made sergeant. Okay. So if you, so you're an NCO at that point, steps. a non-commissioned officer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's five. So it'd be E5, so the fifth level mm-hmm. on the enlisted side. And uh, <clears throat> I was, uh, there was this thing called Meritorious Commission Program. They, last time I heard, they don't even offer it anymore. And uh, there's a couple other programs where you can go from listed commission. But the way I did it, it's, it's I mean, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn or whatever, because obviously there's people have done it before, but it's very rare because you need the first general officer in your chain of command has to recommend you for it. Right. And then there's a bunch of boards and shit you got to go through. And ultimately, I made it through all that wicked uh, what it was all said and done. It was like an eight or nine month process, I remember. And the physical alone was like. I don't know, man. They, they, I felt like the freaking movie and the right stuff where they're sticking shit up in you and everything else. And you're like, what does this got to do with fucking going to OCS, man? Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, I felt like a space monkey, man. Yeah. But we got through all that shit. And uh, I got commissioned in 1999. And my first unit I was assigned to was 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines here on the uh, east coast of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And... I mean, we were working up for deployment already, and then all of a sudden, nine eleven goes off like eighteen days before we're supposed to ship out. Man. Yeah, uh, that really set the stage. So, where were you supposed to go before nine eleven happened? So we were supposed to. So we were going on. We were planning to go on ship anyway. So we okay. have these things called Marine Expeditionary Units. So right now, as we speak, there are there's one Marine Expeditionary Unit somewhere in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. slash Atlantic Ocean. There's one that's automatically in the Pacific. Uh, possible Indian Ocean, and there's one based out of Okinawa, Japan, just one. But there's three of them on each of the East Coast and West Coast. So at any one time, there's one that's it's out deployed, there's one that's kind of working down, and there's one that's working up, basically. And that's about uh, just over 2,000 Marines. So there's a air combat element, what they call the ACE. There's the BLT, which is the battalion mm-hmm. landing team, or the infantry component. And then there's the MSSG, or I think they're calling them MLGs now, which is Marine Logistics Group, which is kind of like the logistics. And so the Marine Corps is very self-contained. A lot of people don't realize that the Marine Corps is the only branch of service where the president, without a declaration of war, can send us up to 30 days without congressional approval. So our mission statement, we are prepared to hump whatever the hell we got to hump on our backs and be self-contained for 30 days at a minimum. So, you know, people always say to me, well, what the hell is the difference between the Marine Corps and, and you know, and uh, the Army or whatever? And I would say there really is, and except for uh, we have been designated by Title Ten of the Code, uh, and you know, by legislators that we will be the premier force that specializes in amphibious operations. You know, and so we are basically, well, the word Marine is you know, maritime soldier by right, definition, right? right. But uh, we're basically just light infantry, um, is what I would say, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the reason why this country has a Marine Corps, because um, it wants one. They get more bang for the buck. And that's not me, uh, sister service bashing, my son's in the Army or whatever. Like, I listen, all sister service bashing aside, I don't give a fuck what branch of the service you are. As long as we're all got, you know, warheads on foreheads and it ain't on me and it ain't practice side, like, I don't give a shit, you know, who's shooting that round off, man, in support of me, like. I'm all about it, you know? Well, having friends in the Army, um, I, I know there's always that joking, but there's always that respect. Sure. I think everybody can joke. Absolutely. You can joke and make your chair force jokes and all of that stuff, yeah. but I think what it all comes down to it, everybody respects each other, but you have that playful jabbing at each other. Yeah. It's just kind of a, Absolutely. a way you respect each other, but you also jab at each other here and there. So 9-11 happens. You now have to go... Or did they send you straight to Afghanistan? Yeah, so... 
So it was crazy, man. Like all of a sudden they did immediate recall. What immediate recall means as soon as some crazy shit like that starts off. So we were actually on leave and preparing for going on deployment. And uh, I was up in Virginia. Uh, my wife uh, had a job up there in Quantico and we just closed on our house the day before. I was literally turning in the U-Haul and the guy and the TV's on and, he, and everybody's like glued to the TV, right? Yeah. And, and He's like, yeah, man, somebody just flew into the World Trade Center. And then I was like, shit. I said, look, man, they're reshowing it. And then he's like, uh-uh. He goes, that, that's the other tower, man. And so literally I witnessed in real time, well, off the TV, you know. And then I was like, oh, fuck. And I remember I had my first cell phone. It was like some Motorola Razor or some shit. And back when, you know, having a cell phone, like 200 minutes cost you like almost $100. <laughs> right. It was crazy. And I immediately called down and circuits were dead. Like, like shit was just shutting down. And so then I, I I told my wife what happened. I said, look, I got to get my ass back down North Carolina, drove five hours straight back there, checked into the, and they're like, yeah, man, like, but the problem is we had guys scattered throughout the country, right? Cause they're, and remember, uh, you know, the uh, FAA locked down flights. Remember that? Right. Like it was yeah. crazy. So trying to get guys back before we left, um, took us about, I would say two or three days. Cause some guys just had to drive back, you know, from wherever the hell they were. And um, and we punched out. At first, we got to see, and they were like, "Hey, we're going up to New York to provide security." Because at the time, they're still like, "Right, like what the frick's going on?" And then it was like, "No, we're not going to New York. We're going immediately to the Mediterranean, and we're waiting further orders." But we already knew what the hell that meant. That meant that because you had to go through the Suez Canal, and people don't know this, but the Suez Canal is like a damn toll road, man. Our country pays. The Egyptians, you know, every country, whatever flag that's being flown on that ship based on the tonnage. And so, I mean, they're making bank, man, you know what I mean? And and so we did a couple of operations. We did some joint training training in Egypt, Israel, Albania. We did some stuff uh, just waiting to get the clearance. And then we got the clearance and then we're cutting what we call we went through and then we're cutting gator squares, which means we're basically uh, basically doing a box movement on ship. Um, way out in the Indian Ocean, or the Persian Gulf, actually waiting for a you know clearance to attack. And uh, at that time, they were trying to deconflict because Pakistan didn't want us flying over their airs- airspace because Afghanistan's a la- landlocked country. So right. So you you deploy to Afghanistan. How long are yeah. you there the first time around? So I was part of the first forces in Afghanistan. So I have the claim to fame as being part of the largest. Uh, uh at farthest amphibious landing in the history of mankind over 700 miles you know and it was a one-way ticket because our ch-53s at the time we didn't have the ospreys they were still being in development right and uh so the ch-53 which is our heavy lift helicopter took off from ship uh and basically it was two blts so i'm blt 36 third battalion six marines I remember that west coast mu the marine expeditionary unit uh special operations capable which is mu sock because most mu's get this sock qualification um uh, and they're blt11 and together we formed task force 58 underneath general mattis who was a one-star at that time who later on becomes our secretary of defense and yeah. the four-star general and all that stuff and um so blt11 sees this uh saudi prince's uh i guess it's his the way it was explained to us it was his air base retreat that he goes two weeks a year to go falcon hunting or <laughs> hunts with falcons or some shit and we called it camp rhino and that was the call sign or the code name for it at the time. And so they seized that. And then we flew in on them. They provided security. We re-equipped. And then that night we launched and did the initial invasion of Afghanistan and took down Kandahar Airfield. Wow. 
And this would have been right around Thanksgiving of 2001. Holy so, cow. That is... Yeah. We, yeah. You think and about we September were, 11th to then. I mean, it's not a whole lot of time. You got a lot packed oh, in no. those two months. It was crazy. And there were special forces troops already in Afghanistan before us. I mean, right. we were... I, so when I say we're the first forces then, first conventional forces then. I don't, I don't want to take any away from our special forces uh, brethren and whatever. I mean, they those guys are badasses, you know. Uh, PJs. Delta, uh, especially your SEAL Team 6 and stuff like mm-hmm. that, or Fib Grew, uh, depending on how you want to call them. But uh, those guys are something. So first deployment goes pretty much okay. you know. First combat deployment. Yeah, first uh, combat deployment. Yeah, first combat deployment, yeah. Because up to that point, uh, the best way to get combat experience is to is – that's the reason I'm a big military history guy. Yeah. Uh, especially as an officer. Uh, you read. Mm-hmm. You read. You read Klausowitz. You read Sun Tzu. You read, you know – all this shit about the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, st- we do Civil War battlefield studies. I've done Gettysburg three times, at Edom a couple of times. Uh, I mean, it's just you you become a student of art, you know, uh, of warfare, basically. Right. That's the only way, you know, and then you train, right? I mean, you do these live fire exercises. You shoot with uh, blanks, too. You do these assaults. I mean, you're always training, training for the big day. And uh, now the big day is here. And, and uh, I can remember... Uh, one of the things that stands out, we were there till about February or March before we finally got re- uh, what we call Riptoa, which is re- uh, Rip is relief in place by the, was it, I think it was the 101st uh, from the Army. And uh, and once they got in, you know, and then you do this battle handover, then we were able to go back to ship and then we stayed on station. And ultimately, at that time, MUSOC deployments for the Marine Corps were six months. We were the first MUSOC in like, I don't know. I mean, for like just decades where we went seven and a half months, yeah. which was like unheard of at the time or whatever. Uh, but uh, so I got back, I want to say it was April, maybe early May time frame or something like that. Um, I don't know if the math works out, but. Um, to go so, look at the I, house, the last time you saw it, we had a U-Haul in the driveway. Yeah, well, no, now I'm back in North Carolina. My yeah. wife was waiting for me. I got, you know, we all got a hero's welcome. Um, it, you know, it was it was a crazy time. I mean. Uh, I remember New Year's Eve of t- 2000 going to 2001, you know, I knew all my friends back home uh, probably partying their asses off. I was doing a pre-dawn, pre-dawn raid into the uh, Maiwan village of the Lashkagar region because Taliban were using it and you're holding the people hostage. And, you know, we had to go in, you know, <laughs> and, you know, you do what the military does, man. I mean, in which, you know, I always try to explain to people, make no mistake, the primary mission of the military is to kill fucking people. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. It's about our diplomats have failed at negotiations, right. and now they're projecting their force either uh, unilaterally or with a coalition and saying, okay, the only way I'm going to make you come back to the talking table is by putting boots on the ground, sticking the flag in the sand in your backyard, you know? You know, I always thought that a lot of, and you probably hear this a lot too, Dustin, is we always say to our troops, thank you for protecting and defending our freedom. Yeah. And, and I think in a little bit, that kind of dumbs down the reality of what our our armed forces do. Because, mm. you know, what happened on September 11th was horrible, right? Absolutely. People died. But it didn't cause us to lose any freedom. There really wasn't any threat of all of a sudden now there's a different person in the White House who's from another country who's saying, we're locking all these people up. I think in a way, it's an easy way to say something, but what what the armed forces do is much more important and much more complex. Instead of just saying blanket defending our freedom, 
they enforce the national self-interest. We decide as people what is important, what needs to be corrected or fixed or who needs to be put in place or what needs to happen. And it's the people in the military that actually enforce the national self-interest. They're the ones that put their lives and their bodies on the line for what we deem needs to, well, what we as a people, it comes down to politicians a lot of the time, what politicians determine is important, which I think is far more of a greater sacrifice to make than just the old standard protecting our freedoms type of thing. I think it's more, yeah. more complex. Well, I mean, definitely, uh, I think the key word is national security interests, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes that gets used very liberally. Right. Uh, sometimes you can't, like for me, I, I I totally believed in what we did with Afghanistan and it broke my heart um, the way that we pulled out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Longest fucking war in history, man, for us anyways, 20 years. I mean, you know, and especially right at the end there where we lost the uh, squad of Marines and a corpsman. I mean, it's just, um, and I'm not trying to say anything about the sitting president or anything like that. It just, it, it, it was fucked up how we did that. I mean, it was like, I don't know, to give the de- enemy a timeline of when the hell we're going to back out to Like, to me, that was just like, that to me was just bullshit. I mean, it's just bullshit. And hear me out. The, you know, it's our generals, you know, they, they are at a certain level fault too, mm-hmm. because they're the ones that are supposed to tell civilian, you know, authorities, because that's who all the elected officials are, civilian authorities, like, nah, you can't do that. They're the ones that be, should be willing to take their fucking stars off their collar and put them on the fucking table and say, no, even though they know they're probably going to get fired and relieved or whatever. I mean, you got to have backbone and shit mm-hmm. like that to say, no, I, you know, this is fucked up. This is not the way we should be doing this, you know, whatever. Now, maybe that happened behind closed doors. I don't know. You know, it's just... uh you know, how do you justify all the lives that we lost in Afghanistan um, to that? And I think part of us invading Iraq, see now, me personally, uh, no, don't get me wrong. The military is made up an all-volunteer force, okay? Right. There's no such thing as a goddamn pacifist in the freaking military because you're a professional. You're going to execute your orders uh, to the best of your abilities. I personally did not agree with us being in Iraq. I didn't. I don't think we – I don't think – I feel that it pulled valuable resources and took the scope and the light off of the righteous fight, which when I say righteous, I don't mean in a in religious context, right, right, but yeah. um, off of Afghanistan. And I think that's the reason why Afghanistan came around again and really got kind of nasty there uh, towards uh, 2008, 2009, um, because we, we, we sunk a lot of resources. We didn't, I mean, when we initially took down Afghanistan, the amount of resources that were expended in the first three years of Iraq compared to the thir- first three years of Afghanistan. Now, I don't have these metrics. I don't have these numbers, but I can tell you it's a fuck ton more, man, that we spent in Iraq than we did in Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, I can tell you that firsthand. <laughs> and and you're, you're someone too. And, and you, you have to, you, you met, you uh, touched on this briefly about civilian politicians leading the, the, yeah. the national self-interest and the national self-defense policy. And it, I, I don't know. I just don't think those of us that haven't been in the service really understand what it's like to serve and to, and, and to, and to know the realities of what that service means. My best friends are all military guys, you know, Green Beret, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Yeah, those guys. I love those guys, man. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're 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 a different type of person, and they live a life that I can never understand. They can tell me stories, and they can share little bit bits of this and that, but I will never understand what it's like to... The, the, thing, the thing I want to stress to people, like my son, because he just enlisted in the Army last year, the minute you enlist or 
get commission, you actually give up certain freedoms. Mm-hmm. What I mean is I when you're in uniform, when you're active duty, you can't talk shit about the president. That's a court martial offense. Mm-hmm. Now, you and me right now, we could talk shit because we're civilians, right? We're not right. civilians. We can do whatever the fuck we want. But I think it's ironic or not ironic. I mean, it's a it's a that's just why being a veteran. And when I say veteran, I usually I loosely use that term. A veteran by definition is anybody that has served. Right. But when I say the term veteran, I'm talking about people who are active duty serving actively today. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and it's like, you know, they they enable us to be able to sit here, bitch about the price of gas, drinking our ten dollar Starbucks latte, fucking pissed off that this guy just cut us off. You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, we got guys like right now forward deployed somewhere in the world. I mean, there are guys taking shit, man. I mean, they're 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 you know and gals and gals. Yeah. I don't you know uh, when I say guys, I mean that gender neutral. And uh, you know, it's like fuck me, man. You know, like like. We got first world problems, okay? Right. I, you know, even if you're dying of fucking cancer in this country, it's still a first world problem because if you're dying of cancer in another country, you're dead already because they don't have the hospice care. They don't have, you know, the drugs and, yeah. the, and, and you know, I mean, they just don't have it, man. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you, you should be fortunate if you have a disease in this country or whatever. You should feel fortunate that you have it in this country. I, the warts and all, I feel it's the best country in the world. Absolutely. Hands down. So moving this conversation along, because I have a feeling we could probably go on. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I just want to let people know that I, mean, I I did not know, Dustin, that we could have packed nine episodes into oh, this man. interview. I don't know if you want to do that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to move it, move it forward just a little bit. You, yeah. through your deployments, through your, through your uh, uh, combat deployments, yeah. you developed something that a lot of people that saw combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan developed post-traumatic stress disorder yeah when did the when did you start realizing that there just wasn't something right with you when you were home so like let me just retard back and i don't want i won't spend much time on i promise but later on i ended up deploying uh as part of a uh, advisor team a combat advisor team basically a combat advisor to the first iraqi army division i served in iraq from uh, uh, 06 of December to 07 of December, mm-hmm. me and 13 guys made up the core team and we're embedded living with 2,500 Iraqis trying to turn them into a professional fighting force. We operated primarily between Fallujah and Ramadi, uh, mostly an area called Habaniya. And at that time, Time Magazine named, which was the bottom part of the Sunni Triangle. And at that time, Time Magazine named the Sunni Triangle the most dangerous place in the world. Yeah, It was fucked up, man. I mean, it was crazy. Early on in that deployment, a uh, guy that I served with in Afghanistan as a lieutenant was back at 3-6 as their operations officer, who was our partner coalition unit, which that meant is if Iraq went to shit in the handbasket, I have a position locator beacon. Like you push this thing like in the movies and the fucking cavalry's coming for you, right? right? Each one of us were assigned one. But our goal was if the shit hit the fan, we need to egress to that coalition partner, which was 3rd Battalion 6 Marines, which I ironically served with yeah. with this my buddy Todd. Uh, back in 0102 as part of the first force yeah. in Afghanistan. And uh, early on, he just got in the country and it wasn't even like four or five weeks later and uh, 16 February, he was coming out of Ramadi. His vehicle took a direct hit from an 82 millimeter mortar and he was killed instantly. And uh, that had uh, a pretty fundamental change on me. I already shared with you that I didn't believe in the Iraq war, right? But that doesn't right. matter. I mean, I was still executing my, yeah. my job to the best of my ability. But and then from that, it was just like one fucked up mission after another. When I mean fucked up, not because of the guys that I served with, who were all awesome dudes, man. I mean, brothers. 
I'm tighter with some of those guys. I am with my own blood brother. Uh, I'm just talking about the national strategy, kind of like what you're talking about or the regional strategy Mm -hmm. or whatever. And we're just doing stuff like I'm putting my guys at risk for this shit. Like no fucking way, you know? Like, and so remember I told you, you know, having backbone standing up and saying, Hey, this is fucked up, man. You know, but here's the catch. If you do that, then you're not in a position to look after your guys either because you'll get right, relieved. Right. Ultimately, though, about seven and a half months into it, uh, we got uh, a new leader. He was fucked up, Fulbert Colonel. And I basically threatened his life. That shortly got me relieved and reassigned. Ironically, I go back. So I get assigned to Fallujah, who then turned around and assigns me to the Iraqi police because I have all this combat advisor experience right. and all this combat experience. So it was really weird because it was like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire then because the Iraqi police was even more of a uh, interesting situation than serving with the Iraqi army. But through all those hardships I develop and, and I'm not trying to uh, bust your balls or anything, but I refuse to call it PTSD. I call it PTS because I refuse to call it a fucking disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look up, I'm a big guy on semantics. Words have yeah. meaning. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the definition of the word disorder, like, this isn't something that can be cured. PTS doesn't get cured. It doesn't. I've talked to Vietnam vets uh, who are, you know, a lot of them in their 80s now, right? And and it's like these guys have flashbacks. They still deal with it. And, you know, a disorder almost, you know, leads to the, uh, like when you look at the definition of disorder, and I would love to argue with any psychologist or psychiatrist about this shit or, you know, any uh, educational person that, you know, studies this stuff. It's like, uh, it's not a disorder. So I call it post-traumatic stress and then another term uh, that uh, we coined through our nonprofit, Bravo Alpha Foundation, is SDA, self-destructive action, mm-hmm. which ultimately leads to suicide. And uh, so I developed a lot of PTS, uh, in mental injuries, I guess you would call them. And then after losing friends both there and then later on, once we got back stateside, some of them committed suicide, yeah. stuff like that. And just having the survivor's guilt, like, why the fuck have I spared only to make it back here and then my friends are I don't, you know punching out you know on life and and you know one of them came to my retirement ceremony and we were making plans to go on a scuba dive and then i get a call like it wasn't even a couple of weeks later and it was like you know <laughs> he lost his fight with his demons man and and then i remember going to the wake and then all, a lot of the team members were there you know and you know his wife sarah you know his widow you know, just hugging. She's like, you know, he really loved you guys. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's it. and then the thing is, it wasn't just him. Like, on I since last year, knock on what was the first year where I didn't directly know somebody that didn't lose, you know, that had lost their fight with, uh, with their demons and committed yeah. suicide. At the highest point, it was three in one year. And when you know these people, like, it kind of takes you back on a roller coaster ride when you're dealing with survivors guilt and PTS right. and already having kind of suicidal ideations of your own. And, you know, I, I, I've just, uh, I talked about this on another podcast uh, uh, earlier this month. Um, you know, I, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but at the age of 45, I almost lost my fight with my demons at the end of my 45. And, uh, you know, I call it irony, I guess, or whatever, but um, you know, it's mental health, you know, remove the veteran equation or first responder equation, mental health, we need to fundamentally change how we look at mental health uh, across all spectrums. It's a human thing. It ain't a fucking veteran thing. It's not a first, nobody gets to claim ownership or, you know, exclusivity to mental health type related issues, you know? And uh, that became my quest, um, you know, through for 
coping healing and i turned to ultra racing for that so yeah. to kind of jumped us into after i've wasted all your time and i guess your poor listeners haven't listened to all my bullshit <laughs> to get to i guess the heart of the matter of what your uh well, subject no. of your podcast is but the heart of the matter is you i mean in your story and everybody and i say this a thousand times on the podcast everybody finds ultra running in their own unique way and, and i think you know, just saying like, oh, I, I was in the service, I, I, I saw some combat, and then I started running, I think does a disservice to yeah. the reality of your story. But at some point, you realize something is not right. You're seeing your was, friends dying. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then for you, what did you notice changed in, in you when you saw that maybe you had some PTS? Well, I, uh, I became more self-destructive. Uh, when I say self-destructive, I think, you know, some guys out there will let themselves go grow a big beard and if you're somebody that fits that description hey no offense man like to me veterans get a big fucking pass especially ones that have done uh, combat tours like hey you get a pretty big pass in my book man you right. know but um you know some become dependent on uh various addictions gambling uh alcohol freaking prescription drugs recreational drugs me I was a workaholic, man. I, you know, I created a company called Beer Army uh, before I even retired from the military, and I went right into that. Um, and you know, so I, I had a brewery, had a brew pub, restaurant, beer bar, bottle shop. I've had like I swear to Christ, every spinoff you can in the beer industry, and uh, and I spent you know a lot of time working and growing that brand from 2008 on. And and the, and the catalyst was me losing my buddy. Todd, uh, mm -hmm. that first go around and, um, and then trying to honor those guys that have lost their fight. I would do these big, uh, uh, beer festivals and wine festivals and donate the proceeds to veteran related charities or first responder related charities, which la later dove into us creating our own nonprofit, uh, 501c3 called, uh, Bravo Alpha Foundation. And, um, so I think at first ultras, I had a again self-destructive yeah. and that's a key term man and so really ultras I think for me were self-destructive actions and that I dude I I remember doing my first 50k actually I take that back or yeah I did a 50k and then like a month and a half later I did the Minnesota Voyager 50 miler up there which is no fucking joke man I mean yeah. that is like pretty going from I think it was Carlton Minnesota up to Spirit Mountain up in Duluth and you turn around and I mean it is it is psycho man and then two months later did my first hundred miler so my my first four months or five months of doing ultras i went from a 50k to a hundred miler like that's not you know and and before that i was running uh maybe three to five miles a day five or six days a week you know to yeah. give you kind of like an idea like you know, I didn't know shit about nutrition. I didn't, I wasn't wearing ultras back then. I was wearing, uh, and I just switched out of ultras too, but I, I'm a big believer in the wide toe box, uh, yeah. zero drop or pretty close to a zero drop platform. Um, you know, I, I, you know, GPS watches, uh, you know, like, I, I mean, I mean, I knew you need to time yourself. I knew something about pacing from doing, you know, a couple of marathons before, you know, like I, you know, you know, kind of like that, you know, obviously the physical fitness test I was telling you about the Marine Corps. So, you you know, you have a, a basic grasp of like, you basically just need to go from A to B as fast as you fucking can without dying. You know what I mean? It's right. like, that's really it in a nutshell, you know? And, uh, but I would say the first couple of years of my ultra running was, was, was really more of a punishing thing, like a sadistic, uh, you know, not, not a sadistic 
masochistic thing, but like, I, it's like, I think the best way to describe it, it's like making yourself hurt to see if you still are alive. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. looked at myself because of the things I did downrange. I, for the letter of a better term, very wolfish, very evil. I always wanted to be the, you know, in the Marine Corps, you know, we're supposed to be the good guys or the U.S. military, you know, we're the good guys or we're the sheepdogs, you know. But I started seeing things. I mean, things in Iraq were very shades of gray. Here in Western society, we're taught between right and wrong. You know, good guys wear white, bad guys wear black. You know, it's it's very black and white. Uh, everywhere else in the world, though, it's not. It's shades of gray. Everything can be explained away. Everything can be justified to some level to the point where, you know, you're you're killing people and you're and you're rolling up people's houses and you're doing these soft knocks or hard knocks. So you have suspect, suspected ISIS or, you know, Taliban or whatever fucking country in or whatever you want to name. You know, you know, one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just and it's like what the fuck are we doing man you know and at the same time not only risking my life but i'm risking the life of my marines you know it's like and i i and you know and of course hindsight armchair quarterbacking you could do it till the cows come home the thing is the, the fact that i know is that if i had to make the same decisions with the same information i had uh or i had the same i'm, I'm gonna make the same decision like because you're never gonna have all the information you're never gonna have 100 percent of time you know, you're lucky you have 70 or 80% of the information and you have to act on that because a lot of times in the military, it's about who's first to act, who is going to have the initiative that that's going to take and seize the day, you know, carpe diem, like they say. And so, you know, it, it's wrestling with all that shit. It's a toxic mix. And I like to use this uh, analogy where we have a true reflection point, like IE that our true self is this mirror mm -hmm. and all that shit in our head, all that negative self-talk, all those lies is this fucking smoke in front of your mirror and you can't see yourself clearly, but you start to believe the lies, man. You start to believe this shit, this, this, this fucking lie, man. And, and, and it's sad because I see even today, I still have buddies. I see them going through it and it breaks my heart because I feel like they're going up the mountain. I'm coming down off of finally, you know, and, and I don't have it all figured out, man. I wish I did. If I did, I would share the secret sauce with as many people as I could, you know, I'd be, Fuck, you know, I don't mean this in a blasphemous way, but I'd be the second coming of fucking Jesus Christ, Muhammad, whoever you want to name. And, you know, spreading the good news, man. Like, hey, this is how you can crack the code, man. This is how you can get, you know, click off safe on your demons and put them to bed once and forever, you know. And, um, you know, but I think it's also a personal thing. You know, it's a journey. It's, it's you know, it's, um, you know, it's like the road to Ithaca, which is a great poem. If anybody wants to look that up, I, I love this one of my favorite poems. It's. It's about the journey, man. You know, unfortunately, it's a journey of how to cope and how to refine and reconnect with yourself and understand that nobody's got it figured out, man. Nobody's got it fucking figured out. And we're all human beings, man. We're all flawed, man, you know? So, and it's not easy. On a rant. <laughs> you know, no, I love your rant because I think it, it brings a, a, up a bigger point. We're not allowed to be vulnerable. You know, no. we're, we're told to to be tough. Especially put on that macho face. men, right? <laughs> exactly. You're a Marine. You're not supposed to be vulnerable. But I think for people to hear that these are the real things that you're thinking, these are the real things that you're battling with, I think sometimes you have to be vulnerable with someone else so they can go like, oh my God, that's that's me. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm dealing with that just like, like, just like Dustin is. Um, do you think you were running, using ultra running? Because, you know, you talked earlier about how you used running as a child to escape the beatings you would get from mom's boyfriend. 
Yeah. Was this, was ultra running being used to escape the beatings you were giving yourself over all the things oh. that you were, you know, not sure about if you were the right person to be doing that, if you were in the right. You know, you know what's fucking crazy, brother, is that I have spent about five years of psychotherapy, both psychologists, psychiatrists, EMDR, all this other crazy shit. I got a service talk. You just saying that is just like an epiphany. It's like, yeah. Yeah, you know, as you're saying, I'm thinking, yeah, like, how could I not see that before, man? I'm running away from, but the thing is, I there, I think of myself as this trinity, and I don't mean, like, I am I believe in the spiritual, mm -hmm. the physical, and the mental. Yeah. And I have these, uh, it's kind of similar to, and I just published, I just started my own little podcast, like, it's a 10-minute thing, it's nothing, uh, actually, like a video YouTube thing or whatever, yeah. and I talk about who's Dustin Castro, and I use this Delta Kane, which is my alter ego. And that guy is made up of Dustin, so I would mm -hmm. call that the ego. Mm -hmm. And then the super ego is this guy I call, referred to as the general, like yeah. basically the zero defect, never does anything wrong, hard as nails, fucking, you know, Marine of Marines. And then this other crazy bastard that I call Murphy, as in Murphy's Law, who that guy's a fucking madman. And if my life was a bus and he's in the driver's seat, like he wants to crash and burn us. But the only thing stopping him is that he knows if he did, he would cease to exist too, right? right. So it's like this angel and demon on your shoulder yeah. and you're in the middle and all that together makes Delta Kane. And um, it, it's like, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like, I would say on some ways, I'm running away from Murph because Murph is the one that's like, he brings, when I get knocked down, whatever it might be, like sometimes I have flashbacks, sometimes I have, I don't know, I just get into oppressive funk. Yeah that drags me down a little bit a lot of times i'm discovering now it's because of lack of good sleep because i have i suffer from nightmares pretty bad and um if i don't get good sleep man boy that sets you up for failure the yeah. next day you don't have you know you're not restorative you don't you haven't recovered whether it's your physical training or not physical training it's just the mental right and then once I, that happens if i get knocked down what i call falling down it's like my demons come up all of a sudden guys that i thought i put down and they just fucking sink their hooks into me and they drag me down even more and it's brutal man Man. I mean, when I'm in that way, it's, it's, you can ask my wife, it, it is like a whole nother version of me. Like just, and the thing is, I don't reach out for help because I feel like I'm this fucking toxic, negative fucking mass. And like, I'm going to infect you. And, and when really I have found there's guys that felt like that and they reached out to me and there was times when I was down and then together we get somehow we slingshot each other out of it. Yeah. And it reminds me of the power of the military. That's the thing I miss, kind of like the brotherhood, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Sorry, man. That's okay. I'm talking so much so fast. That's okay. <laughs> Sometimes you need a cough break just to take a drink. Take a drink. You got me water. all jacked up. You got me all fired up. I'm shit. sorry. I got I got you fired up. Sorry. Mm. No, it's good. It's awesome, man. I mean, I, I appreciate that uh, you're asking. And it's, I mean, just doing this podcast in some ways is therapeutic. It makes, like, like I said, if I don't get anything out of this experience with you, which I've gotten a lot of, but like just the way you just frame that, like, are you running away? Like putting the parallel between my childhood and that is just, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. Who would have thought you'd have got some, some of that on a tertiary running podcast? All and, those and, years and of I, therapy, huh? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you don't have a PhD in the psychotherapy or anything, right? <laughs> Not the whole world. <laughs> so, so Dustin, have you found a balance now as you are starting to recognize these demons and recognizing these behaviors and recognizing why you push so strong early on into ultra running four months of you know <laughs> from 50k 50 miler to 100 miler have you found yeah. some balance now with your running 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. So like oh one or oh one, Jesus. Uh twenty one was our transformational year. Uh very uh, therapeutic, starting to heal. Uh and then last year was significantly huge. Like it just built upon that. Uh I haven't actively talk to a therapist or anything like that in over a year Mm -hmm. um i still have my service dog i still you know but i i running is not an abusive thing i would say you know i'm not using it in that format um i did uh in early 2021 i did my first 200 miler well it actually was 225 miles and it was for a marine that lost his fight with his demons the year before in 2000 and I hurt my ankle and I tried doing a couple of hundred milers and, and I did the bad, I was trying to go back to the Badger 100. I dropped out of 50K and then I went to, uh, I was trying to help a Marine that had a hip replacement do his first hundred miler at Tuscazor down yeah. there in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I dropped out 50 miler at the 50 mile point. So I did a little bit better. And then it just seems like it's been plaguing me. And so um, I, I uh, when I compete, I really love ultra distances. I I haven't done a 5K or 10K or even a marathon for that matter. Like it doesn't scratch the itch for me. The 100 miler distance, now that I've gone beyond that and done 225 and stuff like that, and I've done winter ultras too. Like I love winter ultras. They're, they're crazy. That's a whole nother level of craziness that, uh, uh, and I've been wanting to do, I've tried to do an arrowhead. I dropped out the first time I've done it. I've only done it one time or attempted was at the first uh, aid station about, you know, around the 30 mile mark. I want to do Scobia bad, but um, I did uh, Frozen Otter, which is now being called Frigid Fox. I think this year was the first year it was renamed. Yeah, that's up there in Wisconsin on the Ice Age Trail. But uh, 100 mile distance is my favorite distance because, to me, it mimics life. I don't give a shit unless you're, you know, Courtney DeWalter or Jurek or whoever, yeah. man. Like between miles 50 and 80, I guarantee you at least once. You're going down. You're finding into a dark, negative place, a very dark black place. And uh, if you're normal, uh, like most people, uh, I would say you're gonna. It's gonna cycle a couple of times. And uh, but then there's something about it, you know. Unless you're doing a sub twenty hour freaking thing, most of us are probably doing a twenty four to maybe twenty eight miles. I would say, depending on the course. And when that sun comes up and you're close to the finish line, you're smelling the barn and you're with usually within striking distance, I would say less than 20 miles. It's, uh, it's, it's very spiritual. And when I say spiritual, I don't mean in a religious context. It is, it is so, uh, it's addictive, man. You know, it's like if I could bottle that shit up, man, Oh, I'd have it on IV drip. You know what I mean? It's almost like a rebirth. You know, the person that, that goes into the race, that, that, that moment that sun comes up, you know, yeah. the world's changing right in front of you and, and the crossing that finish line, you're a changed person Absolutely. in some way and, at the finish but, line. But but the truth, though, is, you know, I tell people all the time because I've helped uh, many people achieve their first 100 miles. I, I think I'm actually a better pacer than I am a racer. Yeah. I've helped people break records, finish first in hundreds. I mean, everything. I, I love it. But I, I really love uh, helping somebody who's tried once or twice and they're just it just ain't happening. I get a lot of people ask me a pace and, and, uh, you know, I, I try if I can, if I can fit it into the schedule or whatever, you know, uh, cause I travel a lot too, um, to raise money for charity and stuff like yeah. that, but like, uh, and just live my life of course. But, um, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, I say just showing up to just, 
just signing up for a hundred miler is fucking total commitment, in my opinion. Because right. you're planning a flag on the calendar, man. And if you're like me, you're it once it's on the calendar, it's on the calendar. And you're gonna and then I publicly let people know that I'm gonna do it because then I feel like it holds me accountable, man. Right, you know? Right. And uh and then once you just show up, I feel like that's more than fifty percent of the equation because that's what life is. You know, if you just show up. You got life by the balls, I would say 70, 80% of the time, man. I really do. <clears throat> and then once you step off the start line, the thing that I like about it is it, unlike a 5K or 10K, and again, nothing against people that race right. just 5K or 10Ks. It's just you can't win a 100-mile race. When I say win or finish, you can't, you know, so if you're really good, think win. If you're like me, just an average dude, just think finish. You can't finish in the first 50 miles. You sure as fucking end up dropping out though. I mean, you know, and then once you get past that hump, you know, then it's about, then I start thinking about, okay. So to me, it's like survive to the first 50 miles, see where you're at. And then kind of think about, okay, do I want to try to go for this finish time or whatever? Cause then it's like, okay, we got the first half out, you know, and, um, you know, and I, I really feel like a hundred mile distance, it really mimics, uh, like I talked about that poem, that favorite poem, The Road to Ithaca, but it really mimics life. Mm-hmm. It's full of highs and lows, right? It's full of triumphs and pitfalls, man. And, you know, if it's not your body that maybe goes out of wonky, maybe the weather comes in. And if it's not the weather, for me, sometimes it's been GI issues all of a sudden, you know, and then you're trying to bring that back or your hydration or you're overhydrated and and just trying to find that where you're pushing the envelope, man, and you're running on the fucking lunatic fringe practically, you know, you're on that razor's edge, man. And it's like a teeter-totter. You go too much one way or the other, you could fall off and it could be a bad day. But, uh, and that's the addictive part for me, man. That's the part that is like, I swear to Christ, if it was crack, I'd be, give me the pipe, baby. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> blaze it up, man, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, and the thing is, now, as I've kind of got past this and i'm using it more in a healthy way i love seeing other people whether it's their first 50k or whatever like when they realize fuck there's something beyond the marathon distance right and then you see some of these people maybe they had to lose a lot of weight or they had people with ortho you know not orthotics uh you know artificial limbs and and people that are blind man running you know like it's like fuck me I I love it. it. It to me is celebration of the human spirit, of the human condition. There's nothing like it in the world. And then I use that. I feed off of that, man. That motivates the fuck out of me because and, and well and I and you have to be careful with motivation because motivation is temporary. What I'm really looking for is be inspired. Because mm-hmm. when you're inspired, man, that just fucking that, that jump starts and just like throws gas on a little ember that's inside you, which then just blows up into a freaking like, fuck yeah, man! Like I'm going freaking a thousand miles an hour with my you know you know balls on fire, baby. Let's do this, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's it, it is it's it's inspiration, not motivation. Really, it, it inspires you to try harder. To they're leading the way. They're showing you that okay, you got a blister. This fucking person's blind. Oh. You, you know, you, you sprain your ankle. This person has one leg, you know, and the other one's a freaking, uh, you know, a prosthetic, you know? Oh, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the lo- you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, yep. right? Like, it's like, <laughs> again, you got first world problems, man. You know, it's like this person's really battling with something more serious than what you are. And, and um, not to, uh, not to uh, leverage them, 
I guess, in a negative way, but to, again, to inspire you, man, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing to see what human beings can do, man. And I, the other thing I like about uh, ultra long distances, especially when you start going past 100 mile and getting to 200 mile, guess what? Gender doesn't even become a fucking issue anymore. Like something happens, women can start taking on men. I feel, you know, freaking, you know, right from the get go, like you don't need to worry about balancing scales or whatever. Women, uh, I think there's been enough studies done, like they, they are strong in other ways that men aren't and it becomes a great equalizer the distance where you can now go toe to toe man you know to me if you want to have battle of the sexes go do some crazy long distance and you know i really like to see where the top man top women comes out because so many things play a factor like we just talked about you know your digestion your you know your gi ish you know weather body just bad luck i mean whatever it's uh it's 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 uh and the other thing too about running it's not complicated, man. I mean, we talked about hockey. Yeah. This whole bag of fucking gear you're trying to sell, right. right? I mean, nothing against bicycling or anything. I swim a lot too. Like I just I swam tonight. You know, I try to get some use that for aerobic and anaerobic. But like, there's not a lot of gear. You know, as kids, like we talked about, do we need GPS watches and crazy shoes? No, man. I mean, and really to go run, you, you don't you don't need all that shit. I mean, you really don't. No. You know? The barrier of entry is pretty low compared to a, some other sports where it requires you to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars. And yeah, as race fees go up, it's becoming more yeah. expensive, but there's still races that are pretty reasonably priced and you can really do an FKT, man. I mean, I've done FKTs like that doesn't cost you shit. You know? Exactly. Like, um, a fat ass around, you know? Right. Exactly. There's groups that'll come together and just go yeah. run an ultra distance just for fun. Um, I don't want to leave before we talk about the Bravo Alpha, uh, uh, Bravo Alpha Foundation. Yeah. Really quick. What is what's the story behind that? Yeah, so I was telling you about Beer Army, and we would do these events, but Beer Army is a uh, for-profit company, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't really know how to start a non-profit. That seemed pretty ominous because, like, you got to deal with the feds and the IRS and all this other shit, but later on, we ended up forming uh, Bravo Alpha, so it's a 501c3 nonprofit whose focus is uh, help veterans and first responders deal with their PTS, mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress, and self-destructive actions, STA, and help us uh, put a dent uh ultimately in the suicide rate for both veterans and first responders and you know it's really important that people know that you know we see a lot of this 22 a day shit and everything else like that and there's a lot of great organizations that have like kill 22 mission 22 great organizations i'm not taking anything away the problem is though is that it hasn't been 22 a day i'm talking about veteran suicides now and uh and i'm including active duty i'm including reserves i'm including people that prior served um it hasn't been 22 since 2007. It is 31.2 a day. That's what it is today. Right. And I think the problem with P organizations that have 22 in their name, it kind of lends to like, oh, it's 22 a day. Here's the fucking thing, though. I mean, this lockdown we had with COVID, right? Let's yeah. just say for a minute that 10 children are dying of school lunches every day in this country. Let's say it's five. Right. How long would we have to go before it was like, uh, uh, stop. We're going to figure this fucking out right now because right. five kids a day dying of freaking school lunches, like that's unacceptable. That's just unacceptable. We're at 31.2. Since the time you and I have been talking, we've had one and a half veterans kill themselves. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, literally, while yeah. you and I were talking here, you know, by the time this thing airs, who knows? Like, well, we, 150 fucking veterans have killed themselves. What, what are we doing? To me, they are 
a critical resource. To me, there's nobody that's more important than our veterans and first responders. Why? Because they enable us to have first world problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then for first responders, we can't even get a goddamn number on this thing because we don't have an organization nationwide for firemen, for police and for EMS personnel, uh, like we do with the Veterans Administration or whatever. And so through our research and studying this, the following, we don't have a number, but we know the following factoid to be true. More first responders, now get this, more first responders die by their own hand than in the line of duty. And when you think about the war on cops and you think about uh, EMS personnel responding to COVID and firefighters, like a lot of times firefighters that commit suicide, they'll consider that, they'll, they'll kind of glass it over and say it was in the line of duty because a lot of times families won't get any benefits then. So then, of course, if it's a line of duty, it doesn't count as a fucking suicide. And of course, how can we, you know, it, it's really hard to measure how many people didn't commit suicide, right? Because who's going to say, you know, like I did, right. like at the age of 45, almost died at the age of 45. But like, you know, so it's really hard to see, like, what are the effects of reducing the suicide rate in both those groups? Mm -hmm. But, you know, to me, uh, and so that's what Bravo Alpha Foundation, it's about being proactive. So we sponsor a couple different courses through Band of Runners, another great nonprofit down in the uh, uh, based out of San Antonio, Texas, they do an annual uh, uh, trail camp mm -hmm. uh, for veterans, first responders, Gold Star wives and stuff like that, or Gold Star family members. And then um, through Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School and partner up with Band of Runners out in Wyoming, they're doing this fast packing course. And then we're looking to, uh, we were actually just down at Cocoa Beach talking to Ron John Surf Shop School. Uh, like to maybe see if we can't do something with them or a camp. I'd like to find something on the East Coast. And so Bravo Alpha doesn't have an active program. I'd like to see us have an active program of some sort. But right now we raise money and then we support and sponsor other people to attend these other courses that I believe is being proactive, not reactive. There, you know, we just talked about what the actual suicide rate is for veterans, 31.2. That's being aware, right? I mean, there's a lot of great organizations. Right. It's great to make aware of a problem, but ultimately, how are we helping to fucking stop that problem, you know? And uh, do I think it's possible to make the suicide rate zero? No, I'm a realist. I mean, I but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for that, you know? Right. And, uh, and that's what Bravo Alpha Foundation is. And if anybody's interested, they go to bravaalpha.org and they can check it out or whatever but uh i don't want to make this a thing saying oh please donate or whatever like hey i'm just you know we appreciate people's support and stuff like that but you know there's a lot of great nonprofits out there folks on veterans and first responders uh and i would say get involved man get involved be thankful that uh you have the problems you have you know and the freedoms you have in this country dustin this was a roller coaster man i i <laughs> Let, can we do more? Can we? Can we? Can we? Sure, can we? Man. Can we come back at some other point? Can we do another episode at some point, Dustin? I, I tell I, you, I, I tell you what, brother. You ask your listeners if they say, "Yeah, we want to hear more of this asshole." Then by all means, <laughs> I'm more happy because I, I, I don't want to be uh, fodder for uh, you know. I mean, I'm already the probably the butt end of enough jokes or whatever. But no, I I, I would love to. I mean, it, it's all it's hey, you know, it's it's your it's your podcast, bro. So you know, this is your world. I'm just living in it, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, thanks for living it with me for, for the last yeah, hour thank plus. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. All right. Big thanks once again, Dustin Canistorp, for sharing his amazing story. We're going to have to have him on again because 
as I was looking down at the timer, I'm like, oh, good heavens, we're way over an hour and there's so much more um, we could have covered. Thank you so much for listening. If you'll give me one second, uh, just please indulge me for one second. I would like to dedicate this episode to my grandpa, George, who passed away recently, 93 years old, um, an incredible man, hard worker, farmer, historian, storyteller, wonderful husband, um, wonderful dad, wonderful grandfather, a wonderful great-grandfather, and just an amazing human being. Grandpa George, I, I love you dearly, and I, and I miss you dearly. The, the, the craziest thing was, just one more second, um, when I Googled my, my grandfather's name to find the obituary, um, someone had interviewed him in a very podcast fashion back 11 years ago and put those interviews up on YouTube and it was so bittersweet um, to hear him tell these great stories that I'd heard so many times before. Uh, and now it's in the, the digital space of YouTube. And it's almost like I've, I've got my grandpa right there. So just a little bittersweet on that. So thank you for indulging me for a second. This episode dedicated to my, my grandpa, George. I, I miss you dearly, grandpa. Uh, TheAdventureJogger.com. You can go there for back episodes in gear. And I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye, everybody. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search The Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.